This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, questioning the quality of democracy in Peru as voters are about to head to the polls to choose a new president. Will the Panama Papers' revelations further shake up that race and seeking justice in El Salvador? But first, we introduce Brittany Madison, who joins our production team, and she has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The media are calling them the Panama Papers. They are the revelations of a leak to investigative reporters from a Panamanian law firm, a firm specializing in offshore accounts and shell corporations designed to hide billions in income. With a history stretching back more than 40 years, the leaks implicate various world leaders or their close associates. The president of Panama, Juan Carlos Varela, wanted to make clear the Panamanian government did not know of the firm's activities and will appoint a special commission to look into Panama's financial industry. We are here and ready to cooperate with whatever government on whatever investigation. We will defend the image of this country because we are a noble people with workers who sacrifice for the success of Panama. The leak of documents came from the firm Mozak Fonseca, which said setting up such accounts and companies was legal. Most experts agree such activities are used to hide income from taxation or to cover up corruption. The investigation revealed President Mauricio Macri of Argentina is one of a dozen world leaders exposed by the leak. Prosecutors in Argentina have already opened an official investigation of the president. In addition, reporters noted close associates of President Enrique Peña Nieto of Mexico and Argentina's former president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, also used the system set up by Mozak Fonseca. The reports are also revealed the financial holding used by the leaders of Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and dozens of other countries worldwide. More than 30,000 demonstrators turned out this week in Peru to protest against one of the country's most powerful families, the Fujimoris. Protesters aimed much of their anger at Keiko Fujimori, the current frontrunner in Peru's presidential race. But the protests also marked the 24th anniversary since Keiko's father, Alberto Fujimori, suspended Peru's constitution and ruled the country as a dictator. Although the protesters want to persuade Peruvians not to vote for another Fujimori, Experts expect Keiko to do well in this weekend's voting for president. We'll have more about this presidential race in Peru later on this program. The possibility of impeachment is drawing ever closer for Brazil's president, Dilma Rousseff. The head of a congressional committee in Brazil looking into potential wrongdoing by the president says he's convinced the proceedings should move forward. The committee is now set to vote on its recommendation regarding impeachment by early next week. Brazil's Chamber of Deputies, its lower house of Congress, would still need to vote on impeachment after the committee's recommendation. Members of Congress accused Rousseff of abusing her powers by hiding expenditures from them and not revealing the full extent of Brazil's fiscal deficit. Rousseff stands accused of hiding those expenditures while she was running for re-election. A lesbian couple in Argentina says they will be the first to hold a same-sex wedding ceremony in a synagogue in Latin America. Romy Charur and Victoria Escobar say they plan to wed in the NCI Jewish Community Center's synagogue later this month. Argentina was the first country in Latin America to approve same-sex marriage six years ago. The happy couple can't wait to hear the shouts of Mazel Tov at their ceremony. For Latin Pulse, I'm Brittany Madison. Thanks, Brittany. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Monterrey, Mexico. 
listening group in Monterey was our second largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the Washington, D.C. suburbs of Northern Virginia. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in Monterey and elsewhere around the globe. And now, as promised, more on those heated elections in Peru. Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of former Peruvian dictator Alberto Fujimori, is the front runner. Recent polls put Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, an experienced cabinet minister, in second place. But at least eight other candidates are contesting this weekend's election, and to win, one must take more than 50% of the vote. Peru's electoral authorities made the race more controversial recently. They removed two candidates from the ballot, but kept the two frontrunners, who were also accused of voter irregularities. The Secretary General of the OAS, the Organization of American States, condemned the disqualifications. We turned to Cynthia McClintock to sort out this presidential race. She's a professor at George Washington University and the co-author of The United States and Peru, Cooperation at a Cost. She joined us via long-distance line from Washington, D.C., and she also filled in details of how the Panama Papers' revelations may affect this election. It was only two weeks ago that a decision was made about whether or not the front-runner, Keiko Fujimori, would be allowed by electoral authorities to continue in the race uh, virtually unprecedentedly in not only Peru but Latin America. Now, this close to the first round, uh, front-runners have been disqualified by the electoral authorities. And in the case of Keiko Fujimori, the question was the distribution of cash at a campaign rally, which uh, this particular election, this had not been the case in the past, but in this particular election, there's a new regulation against that. And a previous candidate had already been disqualified on on those grounds. Uh, So the question would be whether or not Keiko Fujimori uh, would be disqualified. And this, of course, was, you know, put a lot of tumult into the race because, you know, she's the front runner. And yet uh, the evidence indicated that she had done exactly the same thing as the previous candidate who had been disqualified. But the ruling of the electoral authorities was that, in fact, the event uh, at which the cash had been distributed was not uh, a, a campaign event. And so she was exonerated. But this still led to, again, it was several weeks of uncertainty about this issue and questioning. So the campaign being to a certain extent hijacked by all of these questions about whether or not candidates would be allowed uh, to run. Uh, then a debate was held on Sunday. So that, of course, uh, uh, was it a very important event? We could talk about a little bit more. And then just as that uh, debate was being held, the Panama Papers uh, were released. And we won't really know the impact of that uh, because opinion polls are not allowed to be released in Peru in the last uh, week. So, uh, again, the uncertainty is uh, intense right now. There was an event. She was clearly photographed handing out envelopes with money in them. Um, why wasn't that event seen as a as a campaign event? And how do you feel about that ruling? 
most Peruvians, and I agree with you. Now, we saw the video. I believe it's approximately 80% of Peruvians who believe that she should indeed have been sanctioned in some fashion uh, because of the distribution of the cash uh, at uh, the event. It was formerly this, an event uh, run by the kind of youth affiliate, so it was sort of on those grounds, you know, it was sort of a hip-hop uh, competition for young people, but it was clear you know, she was there, her campaign team was there, etc. So, again, most Peruvians did not buy uh, the argument by the electoral authorities, and I don't either. But on the other hand, you can't really have an election where three of the four front runners as of February are disqualified, right? <laughs> so the electoral authorities at that point uh, were really over a barrel because you know, if they had disqualified Keiko Fujimori, there would have to have been a delay in holding the election. There was no way they could hold the election. Uh, if she had been disqualified. Now, in my view, that is what they should have done. Uh, but uh, for whatever variety of, of reasons they decided not to do that, the OAS Secretary General encouraged a delay in which you know, all of the disqualified candidates would be uh, reinstated. But I, I still think, actually, as we're talking about all the uncertainty, I still think, uh, especially given the revelations in the Panama Papers, that it's not impossible the, that the first round will be delayed. But I think it's un, unlikely because there does seem to be you know, a lot of desire on the part of the electoral authorities to, to go ahead. Since we're talking about disqualification, uh, there was also the person running in the number two spot, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, um, who was accused of uh, giving out free beer at his rallies, but he continues to be on the ballot. But but yet Julio Guzman was was um, removed from the ballot for some say a small technicality regarding his party registration. You see uh, human rights groups such as the Washington Office on Latin America come out and say they have real concerns about the balance in this election with some candidates being removed from the ballot and disqualified in others, such as Fujimori, being allowed to continue to run. I'm guessing from your previous answer, you, you, you might be in agreement with the Washington Office on Latin America. Uh, I am indeed, and it's not only the Washington Office on Latin America. It was also the Secretary General Amagro uh, of the OAS. He, too, uh, said that the disqualification of uh, Guzman was uh, one, no, too close the first round, again, this whole problem of uncertainty and the focus being on the disqualifications and the electoral authorities rather than uh, who's the best candidate. Uh, and two, as, as you mentioned, that the uh, transgression was, in the scheme of things, uh, very, very minor. Uh, what had happened was that at an assembly by Julio Guzman's party in October, uh, there had not been a quorum for the election of the Constitutional Tribunal of the party. And so when at a December meeting, that was the tribunal that was supervising the election of the party's slate, uh, the electoral authorities, or one set of electoral authorities, 
decided to say that it was not you know, valid. Uh, Usman's party has said that if you look closely at the internal procedures of other you know, parties in the running, that there would be similar kinds of transgressions. And you know, I haven't looked at all of that uh, documentation closely, but my guess is that they're absolutely right you now because it is a pretty minor issue you know, in the scheme of things, given that Guzman had surged uh, to the runner-up position you know, in, you know, in the race, and given, too, that they had tried to correct the problem. They had gone back, and you know, they, they had all kinds of documents saying that you know, the people in the party were happy, you know, it wasn't like there was some group that was angry at what had happened. It had just been a kind of a miscounting of the numbers of people. So again, in the scheme of things, when you're comparing it, for example, to the vote-buying issue, it looks uh, you know, pretty minor. And so there's the problems of is so uh, a, a very minor issue in which the punishment did not seem to fit the crime. Again, that maybe what would be appropriate is a as a fine or something like that. But to uh, disqualify uh, the the candidate who was running second, you no, know, on this ground just seemed totally disproportionate to to Wola, to Secretary General Amagro, and to to most Peruvians, and to me. <laughs> uh, so again, it was a especially problematical because he was you know, surging so quickly. And in the history of Peru's elections, there is the tendency for you know, the candidate surging in February to, to go on to do very well. You've mentioned the Panama Papers twice, and so I'm wondering um, how you see them reflecting on this particular election. In the Panama Papers, uh, Several of uh, Keiko Fujimori's team uh, are named. Uh, Jaime Yoshiyama, in particular, who's been a close collaborator uh, of uh, Fujimori's party, of her party, uh, for a long time, was, was identified. This is clearly very problematical. Uh, with respect with respect to Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, who's now that Guzman has been disqualified, Pedro Pablo Kaczynski has been tied in recent polls for second place with the leftist candidate Veronica Mendoza, and apparently he wrote a kind of letter of uh, presentation, as he puts it, for a person who's uh, identified in the Panama Papers, and then there was also a problem of a relative of one of the ca- other candidates who was disqualified, Cesar Acuna. So three, you know, one disqualified candidate and uh, the current front runner, and uh, one of the candidates currently in second place, you know, have been named. As as I uh, have read the the story, at least so far. It does not seem to me that uh, Pedro Pablo Kaczynski's transgression is particularly severe. No, he just wrote a letter uh, for this person, but uh, I'm not sure how Peruvians will see it. It does speak to the fact that he has connections with wealthy people, a point on which he might be vulnerable. Uh, With respect to Keiko Fujimori, I think the damage could be quite severe because, of course, now, she's running uh, with the claim that she is different from her father, that uh, she acknowledges that her father uh, made mistakes, as she would put it. Now, I don't think she's ever said, uh, in the view of most uh, historians, he was the most corrupt president ever in Peru. I don't think she's, cause she hasn't gone that far, but she has acknowledged, quote, mistakes, and she has promised that she would not 
uh, repeat those uh, mistakes. So evidence that her close collaborators uh, have been putting money away in uh, secret accounts, this is very damaging to her candidacy. Well, given that, and given that uh, we've just seen within the past few days anti-Fujimori protests erupt in Peru, um, is she really the front runner? I mean, uh, the polls have pointed that way, but but uh, but we see this this upsurge of anti-Fujimoriism. There's no doubt about it. The anti-Fujimorismo began a, uh, a number of weeks ago, actually, again in part because of these disqualifications. And Peruvians were very interested in the candidacy of, candidacy of Guzman. Guzman is disqualified, and then almost at that precise moment. This video uh, materializes of Keiko distributing the cash. You know, as you mentioned, it was just as uh, you know, Guzman was disqualified at the same time that Cesar Acuna, uh, the candidate who was at that time running fourth, uh, was disqualified on these grounds of distributing cash. So at that moment, Peruvians were saying, no, look, <laughs> we really have to think this one through, and what does Keiko uh, represent. And I also think, you know, Peruvians you know, are not unaware of what happened during her father's government. And you know, they do teach history in Peru, just like in any other uh, country. And it's been the young people in particular who have been protesting. And they began to protest, again, right around that time in February. And now, when I was back in Peru in March, there were a lot of protests. There were protests at her, at her rallies. So, uh, you know, again, mostly young people who were just very, very concerned you know, that she has not departed from the, from the ways of her father. But uh, absolutely, you know, April 5 uh, was the uh, anniversary uh, of the uh, April 5, 1992 Autogolpe, or kind of coup by his own hand, by by her father, which uh, not only closed the Congress, which is what she referred to, but they also uh, were persecuting uh, several politicians and investigative journalists uh, and other uh, abuses of the democratic system that were very severe. So the uh, Peruvians were reminding uh, their countrymen who might have forgotten about uh, you know, these uh, political abuses during her father's government. Thank you so much. Cynthia McClintock of George Washington University, the co-author of The United States and Peru, Cooperation at a Cost, joining us on Latin Pulse from Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Coming up, seeking justice for the murder of Jesuit priests and other religious workers in El Salvador after years of waiting. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Longtime listeners of this program know we have tracked the case of the murders of Jesuit priests and religious workers during El Salvador's Civil War, and earlier this year, a legal break in that case. A U.S. court ordered the extradition of former Colonel Innocente Orlando Montano to Spain, 
where he would face charges for facilitating the murders as a member of the Salvadoran military high command. Spain has ruled it has jurisdiction in the case because five of the priests were Spanish citizens. Montano had immigrated to the U.S., but U.S. officials ordered he be taken into custody because he lied on his immigration documents. Jeff Thale of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, has followed the case since the 1980s. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. In um, November of 1989, a U.S.-trained unit of special Salvadoran special forces entered the campus of the Jesuit University in San Salvador uh, and executed six priests and uh, their housekeeper and her teenage daughter. Uh, this was in the middle of a guerrilla offensive. The military was very scared that they were losing control. They had decided that they needed to go uh, aggressively against the guerrillas and who they saw as their sympathizers. Several of the priests had played a really critical role, not as sympathizers of the guerrilla, but as interlocutors between the guerrilla and the government in looking for a peaceful solution to the war. And in the context of this guerrilla offensive and the, the, the military's fear, they decided to eliminate the Jesuits. And so the specially trained unit went uh, there was a meeting of senior military officers. Uh, Colonel Montano, who you mentioned, was at that meeting. They all appear to have assented uh, to sending the special forces to kill the Jesuits and whatever witnesses were there, and they went ahead and did it. This is a tremendously emblematic case um, because the Jesuits were known internationally, because they played an important role in talking, in advancing uh, a peaceful resolution of the conflict. Because at least one of the, they'd been in Washington repeatedly. The United States was clearly a party to this whole conflict because we were in the Cold War context. We supported the Salvadoran military so strongly. And they'd been here repeatedly, were well known in Congress and in the administration in their advocacy for peace. In fact, one of them had been here two weeks before he was murdered. So the case is really emblematic. It turned public opinion very dramatically. U.S. assistance to El Salvador was cut in half the next year, and we saw a process that led two years later to a peaceful resolution of the war. So the case is really significant. Four of the six Jesuits, or five of the six Jesuits, were Spanish, and so Spanish courts have jurisdiction uh, to investigate murders of their own citizens. Uh, El Salvador did a um, shoddy investigation under intense political pressure and tried four people uh, in the killing of the Jesuits, um, none of them senior military officials. Only two of them were convicted. Uh, I'm sorry, they, they tried uh, seven. Only two were convicted. Both of them were released in less than two years, and there's never been any justice since. So the fact that there is that Colonel Montano, that there was uh, indictments in Spain, that one of the people indicted was Colonel Montano, who happened to be living in Boston at the time, that he was arrested and uh, while in jail on immigration fraud charges, was brought up on an extradition request from the Spanish, and that a couple weeks ago, uh, the U.S. court ordered his extradition to Spain, means that a trial is likely to move forward in Spain, uh, and even though it's not in El Salvador, we are likely to finally, 20, more than 20 years later, see some measure of uh, at least justice and truth about responsibility for the decision to murder these well-known priests and their supporters. Now, Montano has various 
of legal methods to to appeal this and and to try to fight his extradition from the United States. That's a process that could take some months. But in the meantime, um, by the fact that the United States moved forward on this, the Salvadoran government, which is now a, a left wing government, is seems to be willing to to move forward on on their case um, on their end with with people there. Um, even though that there is an amnesty law in place in Salvador. Right, that's exactly, I mean, we're seeing already the repercussions from the extradition decision of Colonel Montano. Um, the Spanish court had indicted uh, 17, 16 military officials who were still in El Salvador. They'd asked for their extradition when they first did the indictment uh, five years ago. The Salvadoran Supreme Court four years ago said they couldn't be indicted, they couldn't be extradited because of this amnesty law. The Spanish judge renewed his extradition request this past January, and the day after Colonel the decision to uh, hear in the U.S. to extradite Colonel Montano, uh, four of the remaining 16 officers in El Salvador were arrested and are being held, and an extradition there decision there is pending. So that's a very dramatic step. Um, even though the the four individuals arrested are not the most high level of the 16 who are indicted. It is still a significant step that they were arrested um, and that they could be, they will go before the Supreme Court again to decide whether they and the others should be extradited. And I think we've seen changes in the composition of the court in the last couple of years, and I think there's a reasonable chance they could be extradited to Spain, uh, which would be a real blow to the sort of traditions of impunity, the idea that these crimes were unpunishable, and these people, because they were military officials, officials, were untouchable. So that would be a big step forward in terms of truth and justice in El Salvador. This was also um, a case that uh, happened during the Bush administration, during the first Bush administration. But it was a that those policies where the U.S. was was willing to look the other way in the Cold War context were definitely part of what might be called the Reagan doctrine of of the era. Is this is this case now going to finally um, set the Reagan doctrine aside? Well, let's hope so. I mean, I actually think uh, we have seen in the last few years on the part of the Justice Department uh, here in the United States um, a willingness to look at uh, whether people who engaged in major human rights violations or war crimes from Central America who we once supported, uh, whether we should reconsider our position. And so Justice Department has supported the extradition of a uh, Guatemalan official involved in major human rights abuses, uh, has helped support um, ex uh, deportations of two Salvadoran generals, and now was on the right side in the case of Colonel Montano, urging when he was brought up in the immigration charge that the the uh, that his sentencing be tough enough that he would spend enough time in jail that an extradition order could be filed against him, and then when that extradition order was filed, it's the Justice Department that came in and argued that he should be extradited. So I think we've seen a shift on the part of the U.S. government on these issues, and that's a a really welcome thing. What haven't we covered that you think is important for us to consider? The amnesty law in itself in El Salvador is under debate. This extradition request intensifies that debate, which I think is a good thing. Whether you can both overturn the amnesty law internally and extradite these officials at the same time seems like a question. There may be some sequencing. There may be some timing to all of that. 
But I think the overall, what we're seeing here is because of the international pressure and the extradition request in Spain, political dynamics in El Salvador that over time are going to lead toward uh, effective prosecutions in a variety of historic human rights cases that matter for victims and matter for the question of justice and that help contribute to a belief today that the rule of law is actually functioning in the country. Thanks so much. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, Jeff Thale of the Washington Office on Latin America, Walla, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much. Sure, thanks, Rick. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv dot org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Brittany Madison and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.